Well, you heard it from Jeff first. It's a huge privilege. Um, If you've not met me before, my name is Jack, and I'm one of the youth leaders here at King's Church, and I help run a uh, Friday night youth group, which we currently are running. Um, And it's my privilege uh, to bring to you God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking, um, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 22, uh, verses 1 to 19. And we're going to be using this time... Happy New Year, by the way. I feel like everybody else has said it. I should probably say it too. We're going to be using this time. We're going to be thinking about the most important thing. The most important thing. Because New Year is that time of reflection where you kind of reassess your priorities. I don't know whether you've got New Year's resolutions. Maybe you've already given up your New Year's resolution. Um, But it's that time where we can often reassess and we can look back and we can think, what is the most important thing in my life? And we're going to see what was Abraham's most important thing. And we can see through this really important test which Abraham went through. But before we dive in and we look at that, I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you that we can encounter you this morning, that we've already met with you, we've heard you speaking to us and, and meeting with us in the time of worship. And I pray that that would continue now as we look at your word in the Bible. I pray that you would use me, that I would speak clearly, that I would speak what you want me to speak, that, that we would hear you through what I'm about to bring. Would you meet with us through this, Jesus? I pray. Amen. Now, if you were to ask me when I was just four years old, what is the most important thing to you in your life? I would have shown you this. I I hasten to add, this is Mickey, but this is not the original. Um, This is a replica Mickey. Um, But this, this Mickey Mouse, this one represents the Mickey Mouse, which was incredibly important to me. He was my best friend at four years old. He, he was not only just that, he was a constant companion. I would take him everywhere I'd go. He'd just tuck nicely under my arm and I would go wherever I went. And he acted as a pillow often if I was on a car journey or something like that. Um, he went with me everywhere. Not only that, he was a source of comfort He was also a source of fun. Often, I would go to the top of the stairs, I would tie a tea towel around his neck, and then I would launch him off, seeing him fly through the air like Superman. It was tons and tons of fun for everyone, okay? My parents loved it. But when I was really little, Mickey Mouse was everything to me. And if you tried to step between me and my Mickey Mouse, you would have had the entirety of the wrath of a four-year-old, because you do not separate a man from his Mickey Mouse, That's a lesson for you there. But I remember there was this one time where my nan had come to visit. And my nan came to visit and she offered to take me to the zoo. And this was an opportunity which I could not pass up. Because at that age, other than like cats and dogs, really I'd, I'd only seen animals in books and heard them read to me by my parents. So the real life opportunity to go out and see a monkey was too much to pass up. I had to go. This was a brilliant opportunity. And so I went with my nan, and I can remember it like it was yesterday. We arrived at the zoo. She paid the entrance fee. We both went in. And as we were walking in, the zookeeper came up to me, and he went, excuse me, I'm afraid you can't take that stuffed animal in here. To which I went, what? 
And then I looked back at my nan. I was like, nan, sort him out because this man has lost his mind. And my nan then looked down at me and she went, Jack, I think you'd better give it to him. To which my response was, <laughs> But as I recoiled in horror, my little mind got thinking. And I thought, hang on a moment, Jack. My nan has offered me a, po- a realm of possibilities which I can only imagine. If I want to advance into and experience the reality of seeing that monkey in the flesh, I'm going to have to hand over that which was most precious to me. So in that moment, I looked into the face of authority, I looked back into the face of love, and I handed him over. Question. If I was to ask you that very same question, what is the most important thing to you? And by that, I mean that thing which you would grip onto today. That thing that gives you worth that gives you joy, that defines you? What is that best thing that you've got going for you? What would that be for you? For some of you, it's going to be your relationships. I've got the best husband, the best wife, the best boyfriend, girlfriend, family, children. For some of you, it's going to be your looks. No matter how bad the day has been before, you're going to get home and that looking in that mirror is going to be a source of encouragement for you. Others of you, I'm not going to look at you, I'm not going to name names, but you've not been hit with the beauty stick. And Instead, you get home and actually, that's not a source of encouragement to you, but your intellect, you've got a sharp mind, you've got a good job, you've got a nice car. Maybe for you, it's not even something you own right now. Maybe it's a goal, it's a desire, it's a target that you're aiming for, a certain level in your career, a certain level of financial stability. You have this thing which you are chasing after, which you've got to hold off. And if anybody was to step between you and it, your response would be, What is that thing that you would recoil because it has become so connected with you and who you are? Well, Whatever that is, keep it in your mind. If you're making notes, write it down because it's going to come up again as we look at Abraham and his most important thing. And as you look at Abraham's life, you see that he's given to us in the Bible and he's given to us in the Old Testament As an example of a man who walks a life of faith. He is an example of a man who is walking a life of faith. And this walking with faith is really, it's handing over your life to God. And handing over different parts of your life to him. And you can see that often in your own life. If you're a a Christian, um, if you're someone who knows God, loves God, walks with him, then, then often the first thing you hand over to him is your eternal destination. Many people become a Christian because they look at things and they go, well, I don't like the sound of this hell thing, but I do like this sound of heaven thing. So I don't want to go to hell, but I do want to go to heaven. So God, I'm going to trust you with that. I trust you with my eternal destination. And many people start becoming Christian there. But thank goodness that's not the only thing. It's actually handing your whole life over to him. And as you grow in this relationship with God, as you get to know him, he moves into other areas of your life. And he says, I want to be Lord over that too. I I need to be the most important thing in this as well. And that's the Christian life. And you see that in Abraham's life. 
It's what God had been doing with him from the very beginning. God came to him. He said, Abraham, I want you to walk away from the security of your dad's job and your, his money and your inheritance of his work when, when he goes. I want you to step away from that. Do you trust me, Abraham? And Abraham says, yeah, okay, I trust you. I trust you more than money. I trust you more than where I thought my career was going to go. I trust you, God. And then God kind of says to him, hey, can I be Lord over your relationships as well? And he says more than that. He says, can I be Lord over how you actually relate to people, how you get on with people? Because Abraham, he has this kind of sneaky way of telling people half-truths to get what he wants. And God says, no, Abraham, you can't do that anymore. You walk with me. Do you trust me to tell the truth? And Abraham says, okay. And all throughout his life, God is moving into areas and saying again and again, I need to rule over that as well. I need you to trust me in this. Will you follow me in this area? And sometimes Abraham was absolutely terrible at submitting to God. But other times he was fantastic at it. But in this journey of faith, God is constantly pressing into him, saying, I want you to hand over this to me too. And today we're going to be looking at Abraham's most precious thing, the thing that he would recoil if anybody said, step between me and it. God's going to put his hand on it, and we're going to see how Abraham does. So let's start. Genesis chapter 22, and starting in verse 1. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham. Let's just stop there for a moment. At this point, Abraham, he's had a long life. It's, it's a really long life. He's well over 100 years old. And it's been a life filled with disappointment where he has really wanted a child. He's wanted this kid, but he's not been having this kid. But then it becomes a life of hope where God promises him, you're going to have this child. But then he has to wait two and a half decades before he then gets it. And it's a life filled with pain, with broken relationships, with, with ways that he has to um, pass over social advancement because of his following of God. But then it's also been a life of blessing where God has taken care of him and provided for him and brought him joy. And where we meet Abraham here in Genesis 22, he's actually in a really good place in life. Um, he's he's really good bit of life. It's later in life God's finally given him that son that he has always wanted. He's given him his boy, Isaac, whose name means laughter. This is the boy who has brought joy to Abraham's life. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham finally has his son. And not only does he finally have the son he's always wanted, But he's been traveling, he's been journeying his whole life. And here at this point, he's finally got to a place where God's allowed him to settle down, to build a home. The chapter before in uh, Genesis 21, it says this, it says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree. Now, I'm not much of a gardener, but I kind of know that if you're planting trees, they take a long time to grow. That's saying, I'm here, I'm staying here. This is my place. This is my house, my trees. This is where we're going. This is where we're staying so he's got, he's got the wife, he's got the kid, he's got the tree, and it says he's living in the land of the Philistines. If you looked on a map, that's slap bang in the Mediterranean. He's on the coast. 
He's where cruise ships go on holiday today. He is living life. It's good. He's on the beach, I imagine. He's under the shade of his new tree with his wife lying next to him. I imagine there are tunes in the background. He's sipping a nice drink, relaxing while the kid of promise plays among the waves. It is good to be Abraham in this moment. And it's into that moment, sometime later, God steps in and it says he tested Abraham. Why does God do stuff like that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why does God do that? I mean, why is God going to mess with Abraham in this moment? He's in a good place. Well, James chapter 1 and verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. And not lacking in anything. So what we see here isn't God being mean to Abraham. Have some of that. It's dead. It's God stepping in. He says, Abraham, I want to produce a maturity in you. I want to help you develop as a human being. I'm going to put some tests in here to shape you. To mold you into who you're meant to be. God says to the uh, Israelites when they were about to go into the promised land, he, he said that I have brought you out into the desert so that it may go well with you in the end. God's doing this because he cares for Abraham, because he loves Abraham, because he wants it to go well with him. So he moves in and he tests Abraham. And he gets off to a good start. God calls out, Abraham. And Abraham answers with the perfect answer. He just says, here I am. And it's, this, it's got this idea of an immediate response, straight in there, response to God saying, I'm right here, God. What do you need? All of me. What do you want? And that's great. I mean, I could do a whole sermon on that. I'm not going to. But let me ask you that question. Is, is that your response to God? If, if we were to ask some people to write down the story of your life, is that what they would say to you about you? That when this is someone that when God calls, they just responded immediately. They said, here I am. Because this is an instant responsiveness to God. And he starts off well. And then he comes to, he comes to God and the test is laid down before him in verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. And sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Now it's important to realize that in the Old Testament, there is what um, one commentator says, an economy of words. It's kind of short and it's to the point. For example, creation is done and dusted kind of in one chapter. Genesis chapter 1. It kind of, God goes, there was light, there was dark, there was um, water, I spun it, and the earth, everything's there. One chapter, done and dusted. All, everything we know of is created in Genesis chapter 1. But then we get through to this bit, and we get one whole chapter about just this moment between God and Abraham. The whole thing slows right down and it's done on purpose. It's to point out that this thing between Abraham and God on this mountain is as big as you think it is. In fact, it's bigger. And God comes to him. He says, take your boy, 
Take your son. Take your love. Take the laughter of your life. Isaac, I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. And the word used for this burnt offering is that it's a sacrifice where you burn the whole thing. There were, there were some uh, sacrifices which you could do where you cut up a little bit of it and then you just burn a little bit and then you get to kind of keep the rest. But this is not one of those things. This is an offering where you killed it and you set it on fire as worship to God. So God is testing Abraham. And what is the test? The test is Abraham. Will you take that thing which you prize above all else and will you give it to me? Will you give it to me? Will you value me more than anything else on this earth, even when it looks like I'm destroying that which you hold most dear? Do you trust me? That's the test. Question, why would God do that? Why would God do that? I mean, he's, he's an old man. He's finally got the kid that he's always wanted. And, and have, you, have you ever wondered that question? Why does God do this to Abraham? Why? Why does he do this kind of stuff to us? Well, the quickest answer I can give, two simple things, is first of all, that God loves us. One, one John says that um, God is love. It's an essential quality of who he is. He's where love comes from. He's been loving from eternity past into eternity present. He will always be love. God is love. And the second thing is that in loving us, he wants what's best for us. And what's best for us is him. Psalm 16 verse 11 says that in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That can't be improved upon. John chapter 10, Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He says, do you want life? Do you want what it's really all about? Do you want what's best? Well, that's me. And God knows for us to seek our highest satisfaction in something other than him, it's just, it's just like death to us. To take something created and make it ultimate, it's... It's destructive. It's, it's pointless. So for you to some, love, God's saying, for you to love something more than me, there's no point. You're missing the point. Therefore, because God loves us and he wants what's best for us and that he is what's best, he'll move us into a place where we cherish him above everything else. And if there's anything else in that place, he'll either destroy it or he'll topple it from its place of prominence. It'd be like if I had a son who was a painter, and, I mean, the boy's got talent. He can really paint well. But then after a while of painting, he starts to sniff the paint to get high, and it's destroying his brain cells, and he's slowly killing himself. What would I do as the parent? I'd remove the paint from him. Is it because paint in and of itself is evil? No. Paint can, is really good. It can really spruce up a room. But what he's doing with it is evil and destructive. So for his good and because I love him, I'm going to take it away from him. So God comes to Abraham, this man who's loved two things his whole life, God and this boy. And he says, it's time, Abraham. It's time. 
Which one? And he puts him to the test. How's Abraham going to respond? Now, it's easy to think about it how I just said it, theologically. Logically, go through it. This is kind of what it means. But hang on a moment. You ought to think, we're still in a place where God has said to Abraham, take this child, kill him, and then set fire to his corpse. What, how's Abraham going to respond to that? I mean, how would you respond to that? If you were in Abraham's shoes, what would you do? Well, this is what Abraham does in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up. He loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He obeys. And it's instant. He doesn't just obey, he gets up early. I mean, isn't that weird? Abraham, kill the boy. Well, I better go to bed because I've got an early start in the morning. Rise and shine. Do, 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 do. Chop in the wood. Load it, load the Isn't that weird? I mean, it's crazy. I mean, in this moment, I really struggle with this. I'm like, I'm like, God, you sound crazy. Abraham, you're nuts for listening. Both of you, get out the car. Give me the wheel because I don't trust what's happening here. What is going on? But Abraham, he seems okay. I mean, what's going on in Abraham's mind? I mean, the, the response you expect when you hear this command from God is you, you expect a Hollywood moment where he goes, no, rips his shirt, starts banging on whatever, not the boy, anything but the boy. But we don't get that in the Bible. What we get is an early start. What is going on in Abraham's mind? What is he thinking about in that three-day journey up a mountain? But we know. Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament tells us. And in verse 17, it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said it was through Isaac that your offspring would be reckoned. I just want to pause there because if that was me... I would have said, right, okay, God, let's think this through. You said that your promise to me was through this boy. And now you're telling me to kill him. Doesn't quite match up. Maybe you should go back, think it through, talk, maybe talk it through with the angels and then come back to me because this isn't working. I would have used my logic, my thoughts to try and overrule the command of God. And if you're a Christian here, how often do we do that in our lives? How often do we do that? But it goes on in verse 19. And it says, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. That's what's going on in Abraham's mind. Abraham looks at this and he goes, this boy was promised to me and it's through him that I'm going to be reckoned. And now God's going to kill, telling me to kill him. I guess he's going to raise him from the dead. Because my God has promised me this, and he never lies. So I guess he's going to raise him. And you know what? That's faith. I don't understand the mechanics of it all, 
but I still trust you, God. I trust you. So I'm going to do what you ask. You see, this isn't the first thing that God has asked Abraham to do. It's built on a relationship. You see, God's been messing about with Abraham his whole life. Sometimes Abraham would say to him, I trust you. And then other times he would struggle and he would then try and do things his own way and not how God asked. And then he's realized by now that every time he did that, it didn't really work out very well for him. And he ended up having to do it God's way anyway. And so by this point, Abraham has got to this place where he can say, I I don't understand, but I'm willing to admit that I don't contain all knowledge within my little mind. So I'm going to trust you, God, even though I can't work it out. And you see that in action in verse 5. Because in verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. He says, we will worship and we will come back. I don't understand how, I don't know why, but it's not my problem. The details are down to God. And we see in verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Smart kid. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, I, I don't think Abraham's just being sketchy there. Dad, where's the lamb? I don't know, you're going to find out soon enough. No. I think he's being honest. I think he's saying, I don't know, Isaac. I don't understand, but I trust God. So I'm going to do what he asks. I'm going to obey the words of God, even though I don't understand, and the details are down to him. Verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. See, God lets him go that far. God could have stopped him at any point. God could have stopped him when he was saddling up the donkey or when he was cut, cutting the wood down. He could have stopped him any time on days one, two, or three. He could have stopped him when they were making their way up the mountain together. He could have stopped him when he was building the altar. He could have stopped him when he was tying up the boy. But no, God waits until the knife is up in the air and moving. Then, verse 11, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. It's that response again, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now that I know you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now we see. Now we've got it that you value me above everything else on this planet. See, that's what God was looking for. So now, before we close, I want to ask the question, what's this all about? Why would God do this? Why does God do this to you? 
Why does he make you take that thing which you love and give it to him? And in the last 10, maybe 15 minutes, I think there are four benefits which I want us to look at when we're done. The first benefit is that when we trust God with everything, we get to watch God provide. And you see that in verse 13. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day it said on that mountain of the Lord it will be provided. You see, the name of the mountain was Moriah before, which means the the place to meet with God. But Abraham, he changes its name to Yahweh Yireh which means the Lord provides. You see, when you decide to trust God with your life, you don't just get to meet with God, but you get to see him provide for your life too. And that's an exciting place to be. The second thing is that God does this to Abraham because now he's in a place where he can handle the blessings of God. Verse 15 The angel of the Lord came to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the city of their enemies. He says, because you've done this, because you weren't clutching on to that which you held most dear, and you were willing to give it to me, to trust me with this, now I'm free to bless you. Now I'm free to give you all those things which I have promised to you previously. Now you're in a place where your heart was right. That's what I need, your heart to be in the right place. And thirdly, he's not only able to get blessed, but Abraham's also able to be a blessing to others. In verse 18, it says, And through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. He says, Abraham, you're going to see me provide for you in your life. And that's, that's glorious. I get to bless you now because you can handle it your heart's in the right place but not only that but you get to be part of what i'm doing throughout the whole world give everything to god and he is going to use you he's not going to waste your life as a christian he's going to use you to bless the whole world and fourthly is that abraham then gets to see a deeper part of God's heart. Deeper than anybody else at that time. When you say, God, my life is yours, God gives you access to the deepest regions of his heart. Galatians chapter 3 says this, The scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. You see, Abraham got to hear the gospel before everyone else. And it says, all nations will be blessed through you. 
So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Galatians 3.16 tells us about this moment where Abraham's on the mountain between him and God. And it says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What Paul says in the New Testament is in that moment when God comes to Abraham on Mount Moriah, he says, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And I don't mean all of your kids. The seed is singular. He said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And that guy, his name's Jesus. Jesus had a conversation about this very thing in John chapter 8. He said, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, who you claim as your God, is one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And so Jesus tells them, You know what? There was this day where Abraham, your daddy, he saw me. He saw me and he rejoiced looking forward to this day. Abraham on that mountain, he got to see a glimpse of God's solution to the human problem of sin, death and separation from God. And there's something interesting about that mountain which Abraham's standing on. He's standing on sacrificing this ram in place of his son, and the mountain is called Moriah. And you only hear that name in one other place in the Bible. It's 2 Chronicles chapter 3, where it says, Solomon built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. See, the mountain was where hundreds of years later they were going to build the city of Jerusalem, and not only the city of Jerusalem, but also the temple. And what was the temple for? The temple was the place to go and worship God by sacrificing an animal before him. And it was this picture that says that blood needs to be shed in my place for the evil things that I have done so that I can come to God. And this passage says that Abraham saw that it was through his seed, Jesus, that the whole world would be blessed. Abraham walked his son to Mount Moriah. And we see in the New Testament, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, that same mountain. Abraham laid the wood on the back of his son and made him carry it up the mountain, while he as the father carried the implements of his death. Jesus took the wood on his back and climbed that same mountain, while his father was the one who was sacrificing his son. Neither son cried out, neither complained, both obeyed their father. And yet when it came time for it, and Abraham was about to sacrifice his son, God steps in and says, no, no, Abraham, only one of us will do this. And this mountain is called God will provide because it's the mountain where God says, I will provide the sacrifice. I will provide the bloodshed. I will provide what's needed for all the awful things that have been done in this world to you, by you. It won't be your son, Abraham. It will be mine. And when Jesus hung on that cross, the metaphorical knife didn't stop. It went all the way in God sacrificed his son 
so that the whole world would be blessed. That all the horrible things that you have done or had done to you would be laid on that one man so that you could now come into relationship with him through Jesus Christ. That's why the New Testament starts in Matthew chapter 1. It says the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham. This is the seed who's to bless all the nations. How does he bless the nations? He loses his life on a mountain so that we might have true life, knowing God. So when you stand before God with that precious thing that you have, and your ambitions before God, your possessions, whatever it is, and you hold it up to him, and you you say, I don't know whether you're going to let me keep this or you're going to take it from me forever. But my hands are open. Do what you will, God. When you live like that, God is going to meet with you. You're going to know him. He's going to provide for you. He's going to bless you. And he's going to make you a blessing to others as you see what he is doing throughout the universe through his son, Jesus Christ, who I hope you know, who I hope you cherish, who I hope you walk with for the rest of your life because he is where true life is found. Amen. I'm going to pray and then we're done. Father, I want to I want to thank you that you were the one who provided the true sacrifice through your son Jesus. You're the one who went through the ultimate test and you passed it with flying colors. That we now as followers in Christ, we can we can say although I might struggle with things in my life, I might try and hold on to different possessions, ultimately you are my most treasured possession. And it is with joy I hold my hands open and say it's all yours. Do it as you will, so long as I get you and I know you and I walk with you.